Amen. It's good to be with you all this morning. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Titus chapter 3. We are going to be concluding our time in this wonderful little epistle, Titus, this morning. It is a joy to get to come before you all and preach God's word. So if you will, turn with me there, Titus chapter 3. We're going to be looking this morning at 12 through 15. Verses 12 through 15. This is what the Apostle Paul writes for our instruction. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me in Nicopolis, because I have decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their journey, so that they will lack nothing. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works for pressing needs, so that they will not be unfruitful. All those who are with me send you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we thank you for your word. God, thank you for this passage and what we can learn from it. I pray that you would help us to submit our lives to you and to your word. You would help us even now to walk away from this moment changed and more thoughtful as a Christian, as a follower of you. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. In life, there is often significance in the details. Details matter, in other words. Sometimes not understanding the details or making a seemingly small mistake in the details can have disastrous effects. A good example of this was seen in a Japanese company called Mizohu Securities. In 2005, one of their employees accidentally entered a typo when listing the cost of the shares of the company in the Tokyo Stock Exchange. The employee accidentally listed 610,000 shares of the company for one yen apiece whenever he was supposed to enter one share for 610,000 yen. You may not know math or Chinese dollars, whatever that may mean, but you know that there's a huge difference between the two. The company tried to cancel the transaction three times, but there's a rule in the Tokyo Stock Exchange that they do not cancel orders. So as a result, Mizuho lost the equivalent of $225 million because of a typo. Small detail, and it went on to have massive ramifications. Now, the reason I bring this up is because you may be tempted to just try and focus on the big things in life or the seemingly important things in life. You may have heard of these big picture type of people. You may, in fact, be one of these big picture type of people. Big picture people often say things like, just tell me what I need to know. Cut through the mess, give me the facts. Or, if you're a student, give me the Cliff Notes version, please. Don't be that student, read the book. They're not interested in the small details, they just want to know what they need to know to get by. Well, if you were applying this mentality to the book of Titus, we would just focus on the body of Titus's letter. There are a lot of big, important truths throughout this wonderful letter of Titus, but our passage today would likely be set aside as seemingly unimportant. And to be fair and totally honest and candid with you, if we were not working through the book of Titus consecutively, I can almost guarantee you that I would not be preaching this passage here this morning. In fact, perhaps many of you have never heard a sermon on Titus 3, 12 through 15. And that would be entirely normal because, after all, it seems to be just a brief conclusion and has little to do with us today. But I want to remind you, That all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 
And that truth applies to these four verses as well. Therefore, we need to focus on these last few verses in Titus and see what God has for us here in his word this morning. After studying this passage, I believe that there are some truths that each and every one of us need to hear. So I want to challenge you to tune in, listen up, because the seemingly small details can oftentimes make the biggest differences. In our passage, we are going to see three things that God cares about. Three things that God cares about. Now, you need to know that my preaching professor would be devastated that I just used three things in my outline. We were taught never to use things, but after racking my brain for three weeks trying to figure out a better modifier, things is the best one. So we're going to go with it. Don't tell Dr. Aubrey at the seminary. The first thing that God cares about is very much in line with our introduction, and that is that God cares about the details. God cares about the details. Now, in this first point, it is important for me to clarify that our New Testament letters, our New Testament epistles, are what is referred to as circumstantial letters, meaning there are certain circumstances that led to each letter being written. For example, 1 Corinthians. Paul was writing to address various divisions within the church and other matters that were plaguing this local church. In Titus, we have learned over the past several weeks that Paul was writing to Titus, one of his apostolic delegates, in order for him to set right things that were left undone in the churches in Crete, concerning elders in the church, true doctrine, false teachers, good works, and on and on. So when we come to passages like we are studying today, its basic meaning is what Paul intended to communicate to Titus. Namely, he was giving him final, practical instructions. The meaning of these verses is what Paul clearly said to Titus. Paul is sending a replacement for Titus, either Artemis or Tychicus, and he wants Titus to come to him at Nicopolis and on and on. Yet as Christians who believe in the doctrine of inspiration, meaning our Bibles were inspired by God, we also know that God inspired even these practical instructions from Paul to Titus for our benefit. So in addition to briefly explaining the meaning of these verses, I want us to also focus on what's known as the significance of these verses. When we talk about the significance of a passage, we are talking about the principles and the application that we can derive from the meaning of the passage. So the meaning and significance are never contradictory. Rather, this significance must be an extension coming out of the text if it is to have any bearing upon us. So with that clarification, look back down at your Bibles to Titus 3, verse 12. Paul says, When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me in Nicopolis because I have decided to spend the winter there. So Paul tells Titus that his replacement is going to be coming soon. Though Paul was yet undecided, he was going to send either Artemis or Tychicus to Titus in Crete so that Titus would be freed from his commitment there and that he could reunite with Paul in Nicopolis. That is the basic meaning of these words. Yet when we think about the significance of this instruction, one of the things that we can infer is that God cares about his churches having faithful leaders. God cares about his churches having faithful leaders. And we see this all throughout this short book of Titus. Remember back to the very beginning. Things were not right among the churches. So Paul left Titus there to correct those matters, to appoint elders in every town as Paul had directed them. And then we see the godly character that these pastors must have in the following verses. They were told about the responsibility they have to teach sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. So even in this small letter, we can see just how important faithful leaders in God's churches are. And this means, church, for you and me, 
that because of our polity, because of the way our church is structured, you have an incredibly important job. We have what's called an elder-led congregational polity here at Liberty Baptist Church. And in our structure, the church has the final authority in both installing new leaders, elders and deacons, and in guarding the doctrine of our church. Therefore, when the current elders put forward new leaders before you, when we first before that submit, say, please send us names for men you already think are leading in these ways, when we put these guys before you, it's not simply meant to be a formality. We're not meant, we don't want you to just take our word for it. Instead, we want you to properly vet them yourselves. Ask these guys over for lunch and question them on their doctrine, on their life and godliness. Take them out to dinner and help discern. Are these men as qualified as the elders think they are? Do your part of the job as well. Because God cares about leaders in his church and so should you. Next, notice in the second half of verse 12 what Paul says about his plans. He writes, When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, Make every effort to come to me in Nicopolis, because I have decided to spend the winter there. So Paul tells Titus that he wants him to come and to meet him at Nicopolis, because that is where he is going to spend the winter. Nicopolis in the ancient world was a city about 500 miles away from Titus and Crete, and it would have taken Titus about a month to get there, pending the weather. In the ancient world, travel on sea during the winter was incredibly difficult and even impossible at times. Very few ships in the ancient world sailed from mid-November to mid-March. And thus, for someone like Paul, who was a frequent traveler, you would pick a port city, somewhere that was kind of halfway or on your way to the city that you were hoping to travel to. Now, you may be wondering why Paul chose Nicopolis. Though Paul doesn't tell us explicitly, we know from the timeline of his life and ministry that at this point, he's desiring to go to Spain and to proclaim Christ where Christ had not yet been proclaimed. We read about this in the book of Romans. And if you have a map of the ancient world in front of you, you know that Nicopolis is in western Greece, on the west side of ancient Greece, and Spain is to its left. So it's basically Paul going, working his way to his ultimate desire of getting to Rome and then ultimately to Spain. So more than likely, Paul chose Nicopolis because it would take him one step closer to his goal of proclaiming Christ where he had not been yet proclaimed. And from these details, I want us to see another significance, another application or principle for us. God cares about our trust in his providence as we make decisions. Notice that Paul doesn't record for us a dilemma about what he's supposed to do. For instance, Paul doesn't write, and this is silly, you can just relax a little bit, okay? This is totally artificial. Paul doesn't write this though. Well, Titus, I have got a really hard decision to make here. You know how bad traveling in the winter is. I don't need to remind you of that. And you know that I want to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named, but I just don't know what to do next. Should I spend the winter in Nicopolis or what about Corinth? Corinth is kind of close to, actually, Corinth, those people stress me out. They can't agree on anything. I I can't do that. Corinth is a mess. That's a bad idea. Maybe Nicopolis then. Titus, write me back so I can figure out what to do. You don't see that. None of you laughed. That's great. (laughs) Now you did. Let me know what you think. Paul doesn't write like that. Paul instead tells Titus that he's decided to spend the winter at Nicopolis, and then he wants Titus to join him there. And I think that we can glean something for our own decision-making from this example. There are numerous young people in our church, numerous people within our church that are not just young, that have big decisions before them. What job should you take? Should you stay in Kansas City long-term and develop roots here? Should you date this guy or that gal? And on and on and on you could go. 
And when it comes to making decisions in our lives, I think we can learn from the Apostle Paul. So here's a basic process that you can think through and apply to your own life. First, discern your big picture desires. What is it that you want to do that you feel like God is leading you to do? And what is your reasoning behind those desires? For Paul, the big picture was to minister the gospel faithfully. That is what made Paul tick. And it eventually became taking the gospel to those who had never heard of the name of Christ. Second, would what you desire hinder your walk with the Lord in any way? Meaning, would it have negative consequences for your faithfulness as a follower of Christ? If so, then you should probably rethink your desires because being faithful to the Lord is what is most important in life. Third, you should weigh your options and consider which of them would be most spiritually helpful for you and would be most impactful for the kingdom of Christ. So is one of these options before you more advantageous to you spiritually and for the work of Christ compared to the others? And then fourth, after considering all of these things and praying a lot, I think you're free in Christ to, to pursue what you desire the most. So oftentimes I think we become crippled with making decisions in our lives and we can become tempted to resort to signs with the Lord, asking him what to do. Perhaps you've been there. You're driving down the road, you're having a conversation with the Lord, you're praying and then you think, all right, Lord, if you want me to take the job at this accounting firm, turn that stoplight red and if you want me to take a job at the other accounting firm, keep it green, I'm just gonna drive right through. Don't do that. And also don't act like you haven't done something like that before. You know you have. My point is that we shouldn't make decisions like this. We shouldn't seek to test the Lord. And we shouldn't seek to over-spiritualize our decision-making either. I think as long as our desires are pure, the options will not hinder our walk with the Lord. We consider which option would be more helpful to us and for the kingdom. Then we're free in Christ to make decisions and to pursue him and to not overthink it. This type of decision-making reveals ultimately a trust in God's kind providence for you. And God cares about his children trusting him. He tells us over and over and over again in his word to fear not or to be anxious for nothing. So Paul seemingly trusted the Lord, decided to spend the winter in Nicopolis in an effort to further complete his desire to proclaim Christ among the unreached. And likewise, you and I should trust the Lord in our decision-making, knowing that he is providentially leading us every step of the way. Finally, under this first point about God caring about the details, I want us to see one more thing before we move on. Look back down at your Bibles at verses 12 and 13. Paul says, When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me in Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. Notice that Paul mentions four names here. We know Tychicus from other passages of Scripture. He was from the province of Asia, and he was a frequent traveler with the Apostle Paul. He accompanied Paul on his last trip to Jerusalem, carrying the collections from the Gentile churches to the needy Jewish believers who were in famine. He carried and delivered the letters of Ephesians and Colossians, and Paul even calls him in the end of Ephesians, the dear, and, dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord. He says something very similar at the end of Colossians. We also know that Paul was, he was with Paul in his last imprisonment, and that Paul sent him to Ephesus during that time for further ministry. And then from church history, from church tradition, it's reported that Tychicus was the first bishop of Lystra. So we know a lot about him. We also know a lot about Apollos. Apollos is mentioned in verse 13, and he's also mentioned 10 other times in the New Testament. We know that he was a well-educated man from Alexandria, 
Uh, for example, we read in the book of Acts that he was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. We know that he had a significant ministry in Corinth, and he was well-respected among the Corinthians. In fact, some of the church, Corinthian people in the church were seeking to line up behind him. He's our guy. He's our leader, likely because of his eloquence and his ability to speak. But then these other two men, we know virtually nothing else about, Artemis and Zenos, aside from the fact that Paul says that Zenos was a lawyer, which in the context could either be a Roman lawyer, an expert in Roman law, or it could be a Jewish lawyer, expert in the Torah, the Old Testament of God. We can't know for sure because we don't have anything else to go on. Now, obviously, the name, names that Paul included were these men. This was a part of the circumstantial nature of the letter. So Paul included these men because he had a specific thing for them to do, and he wanted Titus to be aware of their coming and their going. They had a part to play in his final instructions. But when you think about the significance of these details, I think we can also infer that God cares about the nobodies or the no-names. By nobodies, I mean those who are not well-known or remembered. Those who never receive credit or public acknowledgement. Those who will not be remembered in history and those who are striving to be faithful, but the only people who will really see it are perhaps your family, your friends, and your church family. In a celebrity culture like ours, you might be tempted to think that a life that matters is a life that is remembered. Or that since you don't have much of a platform or are not publicly acknowledged, then you're far less than what you could be compared to others who do have a platform or who are recognized. But I want to tell you that that is simply not true. God cares about every single one of his children, including you. He has an intimate knowledge of your faithfulness, of your life, of all the things you've sacrificed, of all the things you've done to care. He knows everything else about you, even when no one else does. Our desire should not be to become famous or to be well-known or to be remembered. Our desire should be to make much of Jesus and to be unconcerned with our own glory or recognition. I'm afraid that we're living in a church culture that hasn't learned yet the lessons of James and John. Remember when they were on their way to Jerusalem and their mom asked on their behalf, hey, could, could James and John sit at your right and left hand in the kingdom? They wanted Jesus on the throne. They weren't asking to usurp Jesus, but they were wanting a little bit of glory too. They were wanting a little bit of recognition as well. It wasn't solely about Christ. It was also about them. And I think that we can still do the same thing today. We can make this Christian life about Jesus, yes, but we also seek to have a little recognition along the way. Friends, I want to ask you to weigh your hearts. Do you sense a bit of selfish ambition in there? Are you content to serve Christ and to never be acknowledged? Do you get upset when people don't recognize you for something you did? Do you seek to boast about the things you are doing so that people will be sure to see it? I think we should strive to trust the Lord when he says in the Sermon on the Mount that your father who sees in secret will reward you and that should be enough for us. Strive to be content with the hidden smile of God knowing that his delight in your obedience and your faithfulness is all that really matters and all that you really need. For those of you who are striving to be faithful and who aren't concerned about self-glory or being known or anything like that, I want to just encourage you to keep it up. Keep pursuing faithfulness. Keep serving people even when no one knows. You are not a nobody before the Lord. You are faithful. You are honoring to God. And he is so pleased with your faithfulness. God cares about the nobodies. So to recap, God cares about the details God cares about his church having faithful leaders. God cares about our trust in his providence as we make decisions. And God cares about the nobodies. The second thing is that God cares about his people 
living fruitful lives. God cares about his people living fruitful lives. Look back down at your Bible at verses 13 and 14. Paul writes this, Diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their journey so that they will lack nothing. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works for pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. So more than likely, Zenos the lawyer and Apollos were the letter carriers to the, or for the epistle of Titus. So after having delivered the letter, perhaps teaching and encouraging the believers in Crete, Paul calls Titus to send them on their way, but first to make sure that they're well taken care of. In fact, in verse 13, we see an example of what Paul tells Titus to do in verse 14. In verse 14, Paul calls Titus to implore the church to learn to devote themselves to good works for pressing needs. And one such good work of pressing need was mentioned in verse 13. Namely, be eager or diligent to supply Zenos and Apollos every need. This likely refers to all matters of life, food, clothing, but particularly probably money. Now, if you've been with us throughout the entire book of Titus to this point, you know that Paul is concerned with the churches of Crete doing good works for the Lord. This is a major theme throughout this little book. At the end of chapter 1, if you'll recall, Paul uses a negative contrast and talks about those who are defiled and unbelieving and how they claim to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. So the opposite of that is those who are pure and undefiled, and these will show that they know God by their works, and they will be fit and ready for every good work. In chapter 2, verse 7, Paul says that Titus should make himself an example of good works with integrity. A few verses later in chapter 2, Paul writes a beautiful description of the gospel, and then talks about the effect it has on genuine believers when he says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Pay attention. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse himself for a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. Notice that Jesus gave himself for us to cleanse us so that we could be his but also so that we could be eager to do good works. In chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says that Titus should remind them, that is the churches in Crete, to submit to the rulers and authorities, to obey, and to be ready for every good work. Next, just a few verses later, Paul gives another incredible description of the gospel, and he follows it up by saying this, I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. These are good and profitable for everyone. And then finally, we return to our passage that we just read a moment ago where Paul says, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works for pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. Do you think after that overview of this small, short epistle that it might be important to God that his followers do good works and believe and and bear good fruit? Yes, I think so. Hopefully you do too. In scripture, when something is important, it will often be repeated. And that is exactly what we see here. But I want you to notice that in our passage, Paul doesn't say these Christians are to just, you know, gradually think about obedience or gradually think about good works. He doesn't say that. What does he say? To learn to devote themselves to good works. The fact that Paul says that these Christians must learn to devote themselves to good works means that being devoted to good works might not come as naturally to you as you would expect. 
Rather, to learn something requires intentional and active thought and even preparation. In other words, if we don't actively strive to be devoted to good works, we likely won't be. We will be unfruitful, as Paul says in verse 14. So I want to ask you, are you continually learning to devote yourself to good works? Or how many of you this morning would consider yourself unfruitful? How many people in your life can discern that you are a Christian or that you are different and marked out from the world by what you do and how you do it? One of the most stark reminders of this for me personally, I was working as a lifeguard shortly after becoming a Christian, began to read the Bible a lot and yeah, just was trying to follow the Lord faithfully. And I worked all summer with this person, this, this lady. And at the very end of the summer, I said something that revealed that I was a Christian. And she said, oh, wow, I had no idea that you were a Christian. And I had literally worked with her every day for three months. I was like, yikes, that stings. <laughs> Can people in your life, your coworkers, tell that there is something different by the way you live and what you do? Are you marked by an eagerness and a generosity to give and to bless others? Or have you become unfruitful lately? Perhaps you even remember a time in your Christian life where you seem to be more focused on serving and giving to others. What has changed? And how and why, what would keep you from recommitting yourself to being fruitful this morning? Now, oftentimes we can say things like good works, and the idea generally makes sense to us, but as a biblical counselor that I really enjoy has frequently said, change doesn't happen in fuzzy land. So in an effort to help make good works more practical to you, I want to list several things that you can do as you seek to learn to cultivate good works within your own life. These are just general ideas and many more could be listed. You could write notes of encouragement to those who may be going through a difficult time in our church. You could visit those who may be mourning the loss of a loved one and encourage them in the Lord. I'm thinking of Delmer Ford and Miss Donna Meeker, two recent uh, people in our church who are going through this difficult season. You could email our missionaries on the field and ask if they have any pressing needs that you may be able to meet. And you could pray with them over the phone and then also send money to them to help bless them financially. You could ask the pastors if there are any people in our church who are going through a hard time and you could give them a phone call in hopes of encouraging them and letting them know that you love them and you're there for them. You could serve at a local food pantry or a homeless shelter in hopes of providing physical, tangible needs, but also hopefully getting to provide opportunities for you to share the gospel with non-believers. You could call the elderly and the widows in our church just to talk and check in on them, just to see how they're doing. You could call the elderly and the widows in our church to see if they have any needs around their house. Or you could help get them their groceries for this week. You could clean up the leaves in their yard. You could help take care of their physical needs that they may not be able to get to on a week base, weekly basis anymore. You and your family could begin the foster care or the adoption process for the thousands of orphans in the state of Missouri alone. You could set aside money each week and then actively seek to bless someone with it. You could be buying a dinner for a family who had just had a new baby or helping someone who is in a tight spot just pay their weekly bills. You could volunteer to serve our church by signing up for a spot in Liberty Kids. That's important. Please do that. You could serve in numerous other ways as a volunteer in our church. You could invite your neighbors into your home for dinner just to get to know them and hopefully have an opportunity to share the gospel with them. Those are just a few examples, but undoubtedly you could think of more. And there are maybe even things coming to your mind right now. You think, ah, I could do that. That would be a really good way for me to show who I am in Christ and that I love these people. Ultimately, what I think, or what I want you to see is the Christian life is not just a focus on ourselves and our spiritual lives. It is not less than that. It is that. But it is also far more than that. We are to be people who are focused on others and serving them. 
Do you remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I want to ask you, are you still salty this morning? Are you still a light on display for those in your life to see Jesus? Can anyone point to good works in your life and give glory to your Father who is in heaven on your behalf? If the answer is no, then I would encourage you to examine your heart. As James wrote, faith without works is dead. It could very well be that you don't have true faith. You're not a genuine born-again believer. Or perhaps it could be because you have been unintentional. You have faith, but your faith at this moment is not bearing fruit because you're not seeking to cultivate that within your life. Either way, examine your heart and ask the Lord to reveal it to you because we know from Scripture that a heart that is truly given to Christ is a heart that desires to please him, to obey him, and to to honor him. In the early 4th century AD, a plague hit the city of Caesarea. Many people fled the city in hopes of seeking safety to avoid getting sick and even dying. Yet one of the early church fathers, a guy named Eusebius, records for us that Christians decided to stay behind at the risk of great risk to themselves to help the sick and the dying. He writes this, All day long, some of them, that is the Christians, tended to the dying and to their burial, and countless numbers with no one to care for them were cared for. Others gathered together from all parts of the city, a multitude of those withered from the famine to distribute bread to them all. Eusebius then goes on to write how this had an incredible effect on the non-believing people of Caesarea. He said that these Christians' deeds were on everyone's lips and they glorified the God of the Christians. Such actions convinced them that they alone were pious and truly reverent to God. These radical acts of generosity and care led people to notice the early Christians and to marvel and wonder about the God who they professed. I wonder how we are doing in this regard. How are you doing in this regard? God cares about his people living fruitful lives, and so should you and me. So we've seen that God cares about the details. God cares about his people living fruitful lives. And now finally, the third thing is that God cares about you. God cares about you. Paul writes in the final verse in the book of Titus, All those who are with me send you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith, and grace be with all of you. In this fairly standard conclusion, Paul And those with him send greetings to Titus and to the churches who are in Crete. And as a result, Titus is to share this greeting and the letter of Titus with those who are with the born-again believers there in Crete. Now you may be thinking, how in the world did you get from this verse to the point that God cares about you and me? Two ways. First, I want you to see that God cares about you and that he has given you a church to love you. There is a basic assumption throughout the entire New Testament that every born-again believer is a part of a local church. Paul, as he pins this conclusion, is recognizing and sending godly affection toward the other believers who are with Titus in Crete. There is a common bond between every true believer because of their faith in Christ. And if you read your New Testament carefully, it is clear that our Christian life is one that is meant to be lived in community with other believers. 
God has given you a church family to encourage you, to support you, to equip you, to admonish you on in faithfulness. And as Paul received encouragement and support from these believers in various churches that he founded and knew, so you are to receive encouragement and support from our local church church, and even other churches that we partner with periodically. God cares about you so much that he doesn't ask you to walk the Christian uh, Christian life alone. Instead, he has given you a family to help you every step along the way. Do you view your church family this way? Do you view your church family as a sign of God's love for you? Because I think you should. Second, God cares about you and that he has given you grace to do everything he has called you to do. Paul concludes by writing, grace be with all of you. Paul recognized that all of life is all of grace. Paul has told Titus to do a lot of things in this short letter. He is to appoint elders in every town. He is to rebuke false teachers. He is to teach sound doctrine. He is to instruct the young men. He is to remind the church about being ready for every good work and about submitting to the governing authorities. Numerous, very important things that Titus must do. Yet Paul also recognizes that Titus needs grace to do all of it. And the same is true for you and me. There are a lot of imperatives in the New Testament. Commands which we must obey and we should not minimize any of them. Yet God loves you so much that he doesn't simply set the bar high and then say, have fun, get to work. He doesn't do that. Instead, he enables you and he helps you to obey and to grow in faithfulness. If you are in Christ, he has given you a new heart with new desires. And now we desire as Christians to obey God because we have been saved and because our greatest desire is to honor the God we love. We do not desire to obey or to do good works because we are seeking to be saved or to earn God's favor. That would be to fall into the trap of a works-based religion that is void of grace. Instead, we know that our good works We know that our good works are supposed to flow from our transformed hearts. We see a beautiful depiction of what I'm describing in a couple places in the book of Titus, but think back to Titus 2. I've read it earlier. In 2.14, Paul says that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. Notice the progression. Jesus gives himself for us. He redeems us. He cleanses us so that we would be his, and so that then we would be eager to do good works. Our works don't contribute to us being redeemed or to be cleansed. Rather, our eagerness for good works are the fruit of what Jesus has done within us. Think of it like this. If you were to die in Christ today, you would be no more justified before God. You would be no more in right standing before God than if you were to live 20 more years of a life living good works for him. If you were to die today, you'd stand before Christ, before God in heaven, just as saved as if you were to live a very faithful life doing good works for another 20 years. The rewards in heaven may be a little different, but your justification, your standing before him would be identical. And that is because your justification, your salvation is not based upon you and what you do or have done. Rather, it's based upon Christ, what Christ has done for you. Do you believe that this morning? Are you resting in Christ's finished work? Or are you still striving to earn favor with God? You can't do it. You can't clean yourself up enough. 
So submit to him, love him, confess to him, run to him, and let that love for him propel you to the life of good works. Now, if you are here and you're not a Christian, what you need to know is somewhat similar. Your supposed good works cannot earn you favor before God. You may think of yourself as a pretty good person, yet the Bible says that you are a sinner before God, and no matter how hard you try to clean yourself up, no matter how hard you work, you cannot remove your sin before a holy God based upon what you do. Yet the good news is that God has not left you in that state, that God sent his son to die for you while you were still a sinner, not for the cleaned up version of you, but for you at your worst. Jesus came to die for you then. God loves you and he will make you clean. And all he simply asks you to do is to look to Jesus who bore the sin of sinners on the, on the cross, died the death that they deserved and then was resurrected three days later conquering sin and death on our behalf. If you place your faith in that Jesus, you will be saved, pardoned and reconciled to God to spend a life with him both now and for all eternity. And I would love to tell you more about that. If you recognize yourself as a sinner, you recognize yourself not as following Christ, and you want to know more about what it means to be a Christian, what we're doing here even this morning, come talk to me or talk to the person next to you. I'd love to tell you more about that. Church family, we see that God cares about the details. God cares about his people living fruitful lives. And God cares about you. And our prayer is that we would be a people who reflect the great truths that we have seen about the entire book of Titus, from verse 1 all the way to 3.15. That we would be a people who overflow with good works towards one another and towards the world because of the great salvation that we have in Christ. So I want to ask you one more time this morning, do you care about the details? Learning from these details can make a huge difference in our lives, and it is my prayer that they would. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we are so thankful for who you are. We're grateful for your love for us. We're thankful that you have saved us and redeemed us and have called us to demonstrate that great salvation that we have with others in our lives. Would you please help us to be faithful even in this holiday season as we're gonna be around family and friends, neighbors perhaps. Would you please help us to be bold with the gospel? Help us to demonstrate the good works that you have wrought within us because of our salvation in Christ. We love you, we praise you, ask for your help in all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.